Welcome to McKinsey Talks Talent, a podcast that helps you understand the new science of talent. I'm Lucia Rahili. Change is a constant. We knew that even in the prelapsarian days before the outbreak of COVID-19. But here's what we didn't know, how fast that change could happen. Across the world, companies and their employees have had little time to devise new ways to work, and the changes will keep coming. Artificial intelligence, automation, augmented reality, all the technologies we've been talking about in recent years are suddenly fair game in the new world of work. So how do you best prepare? Some call it right-skilling, although you might hear upskilling or reskilling too. At its core... It's how can you look and say, we have a group of employees who are capable of doing something today. What means can we use to get them to being able to do something different tomorrow? Today, two people who have the right skills to talk about it all. Bill Shanninger, a senior partner in our Philadelphia office and the author of Beyond Performance 2.0, A Proven Approach to Leading Large-Scale Change and Brian Hancock, a partner from our Washington, D.C. office, who's a global leader in McKinsey's talent work. This conversation was taped before the pandemic. Let's get started. Bill, Brian, welcome to New York. So great to see you guys again. Great to see you. Happy to be back. Let's start with some basics. Bill, what is reskilling, and how is it different from regular old on-the-job training and traditional learning programs that we've had for decades? Well, for one, reskilling has just gotten an amazing amount of press, right, in the last, I don't know, maybe two, two and a half years. You could say the bulk of it has been spurred on recently by all the talk of automation, right? And so will there'll be another era and movement in now industrial America, which is dramatically smaller than the last time there was an industrialization. But in this case, it's, well, automation, in particular automation, but then other robotic and robotic processing, things like that, replace people. Historically, you'd have only ever seen that in large-scale manufacturing roles. We know that's there. That's becoming more, as the cost of capital comes down for doing that, it's there. But now increasingly, you can see automation in roles that previously would have been unassailable, lawyers, medical professionals. So now when we talk about it, And there's a very interesting difference, which I'm sure we'll get into, between how it's being treated in North America and how it's being treated, particularly in Western Europe. Brian has some really good examples on this with the the resurgence even of unions as guilds almost. At its core, it's how can you look and say, we have a group of employees who are capable of doing something today. What means can we use to get them to being able to do something different tomorrow? And it's three big groups, but only one of which really gets talked about. Redeploy is just you find somebody who does it somewhere else in the company and you move them. You redeploy them. Upskill, we'll have some, we'll spend a little time on this, I think, trying to take the essence of what they do and make them more skilled, more advanced, more gifted at what they do. Reskill is old school. We're just going to completely train you in something new, which calls into a whole bunch of questions around economics and social responsibility around, is it reasonable to believe that existing employees can do something completely different? So that last one has gotten the bulk of it because it's touched on things like purpose, social responsibility employer obligation, employee rights, you know, that sort of stuff, right? Then it's really, really been resonant in the newspapers. So Brian, does reskilling actually work to Bill's point? Do we have research that shows that companies can retrain workers meaningfully at scale? Uh, Reskilling is hard. I think the research would show that 
you know, companies really struggle to take somebody who has been doing one thing and train them in doing something completely different. What you have to really do is think very carefully about what the nexus is between what that person is doing today and what they could be good in in the future. So one example I like to use of reskilling, which has a high potential of working, is insurance claims. And so if you take somebody who is a claims adjuster today, uh, a computer can do pretty much all of what that person can do off of a picture of an auto accident. So you can take a picture of the accident, uh, the computer processing can figure out using artificial intelligence what damage happened to the car, uh, how much that damage would cost to repair, and could spit back out kind of automatically, here's what we think we should pay out on the claim. That means that for the insurance claims folks, that traditional line of business, it's, those jobs are going to be going away. But what could they do in the future? Well, they've seen thousands of accidents. They'd make really good salespeople. So what you're doing and when you're thinking of moving somebody from the claims organization to the sales organization is you're thinking about, well, what do they know? What do they have experience with? Well, they can help train the algorithm because they've seen it thousands of times and they can help sell because who can be more effective than to say, hey, I know you don't want that coverage, but let me tell you, I've literally seen thousands of times when the tree hits the windshield and your current coverage doesn't do that, right. and you should really do it. But it's looking for that nexus, retraining the claims person to be, you know, a uh, to be the one to write the algorithm probably is a leap too far. But thinking about the nexus of what they know, you know, that's what makes it uh, successful. That's what makes that big reskilling leap successful. Brian, are we mostly talking about skills that are in short supply now? Or are we mostly talking about, as Bill was saying, skills that will be affected by automation five years out or 10 years out? I think the reality is it's both. I mean, there are companies now that have a shortage and are experiencing a shortage. But if you're only skilling to what the shortage is today, you're missing what you're going to need in the future. And so, you know, there is a great organization, Futuro Health, uh, which is a partnership between the SEIU, UHW, and Kaiser Permanente to train healthcare workers in California. Uh, they are focused not just on what it currently takes to be a medical assistant or what it currently takes to be a medical coder, but they're looking at the changes that are happening in the medical profession to say, okay, in the future, we're going to need even more interpersonal skills as some of the more basic parts of care delivery can be automated successfully. They see that need for higher interpersonal skills. So as they're thinking about their training programs, they're not just closing for the gaps today, but they have in mind that future gap as well. Are there sectors that you see as particularly at risk? It's a good question because when the automation stuff first came out, the early number wasn't all that impressive. It was like, oh, 30% will be automated, you know, or up to 30 or have most, I think if I'm being accurate, it was like 30% would have like two thirds of their job automated. That didn't seem, it, I mean, this, a lot of it was just the ones that had already been, really been compromised were already on their way to being compromised. What was surprising was when they broke jobs up into tasks, you saw a lot more of the task, right? Then it was something like 75% of jobs could have up to a third of their task automated, something on that magnitude. Right, right. So it made it made this thing for companies then to say, well, are we are we forced to pull jobs apart, almost like deconstruct and then reconstruct it? Mm -hmm. And then that thing that was left, what does that mean for an employee? Right. And I mean, and just building on that, when you think about 
a job that may have had a big part of it that was manual data entry or aggregating information in a spreadsheet and a little bit of critical thinking analysis and presenting. When that job has all of the basic parts automated, somebody could have been a really good Excel jockey, could have been really, really good at that, but not so good at the other parts and could have been a star in the role. What we're talking about when we're talking about reskilling is we're talking about that person who now has to learn how to present, has to learn how to talk, has to learn how to think critically on the insights because being an Excel jockey doesn't cut it anymore. And so it's some of, you know, often we think of reskilling as only about the digital skills, but it's also about the human skills that are what remain when things that can be automated are. And I think that part of the office work of finance, a lot of the white collar jobs where the dull is going to be automated, that's where you know a lot of this reskilling focus and upskilling focus really is. It's also the human in that, right? You know, when Brian was pulling that apart, if you think about the Excel jockey, they had a skill. They were also probably pretty comfortable with it, right? There's a certain kind of person that actually likes model building and really just wants to model build. So when you start pulling jobs apart and saying, hey, we need you to do these other things, you're always forced to go back to ask, who are they as a person? Do they have any proclivity towards this at all? And in what could we reasonably train them up on? That's, I think, where it makes the first real conundrum, which is accepting that the incumbents you have, no matter how loyal and maybe even how good they've been at their job, they may just not be suitable to be an incumbent going forward. And that brings all sorts of responsibility kind of questions to the front. Sure, sure. So our research shows that most leaders grok the importance of reskilling now but most of them are under huge short-term pressures, right? Like activist investing is up, CEO tenures are down, geopolitical dynamics, volatile, abounding. What do you say to leaders who get it, who get the importance, but they want to wait a few years to get moving, maybe until they're a little clearer on what their skill gaps will be and have a more concrete sense of that? I think having a real perspective now over what are the realities of your workforce and of those human beings and where are those human beings going to be in five to 10 years and how can you help those human beings make the next step forward? So in many frontline industries where the employers know that there's high turnover, so a lot of those human beings, regardless of skilling or not, may not be employees of theirs, but also recognize that, hey, these folks, we want to help them along. How can they think about doing that now. So what I'd encourage people is to think about that longer term view. And you do have companies like Walmart who are investing in their frontline employees, giving them options to learn and are also uh, through uh, various working groups like the US Chamber of Commerce, thinking about things like interoperable learning records, which are things where, hey, as a frontline employee, you can have a record of the skills that you gained here that you can then use in your next job in retail or your next job in healthcare or your next job in distribution. But what I'd encourage uh, leaders to think about is those humans and how they're going to evolve and how their company is not uniquely positioned, but one of many folks in the chain that can help those humans advance. That, that the, you know, the interoperable employee record, if I heard you correctly. What a great idea. You know, a bit like the universal health record, right? Right. But you could argue from an agency standpoint, historically, why would a company want to pay to skill somebody up if they were only going to walk? Right. And so then if the mindset there was, I deserve a return on my investment, that mindset probably has to shift towards during the period of time they're in our care and part of us, we have an obligation to make them future employable. 
as well as, and it's a very interesting mindset on how you'd get your head around that, right? One of the things Brian had just said earlier, which I think is, is just so interesting, is when you start thinking about, well, what do we have to do? Because, you know, we, we both have had studies in the last 18 months on this. Some folks really are afraid. I mean, genuinely afraid, right? Because it's the big beast coming. Sure. And they're worried about being tweeted about, right? Or worried about showing up, you know, in, in the paper. I think one of the things that you can take as a truism is just, even if we didn't do anything different, just demographics, you're going to lose people. Like, think about that situation there, like in the call center, where you have 125% turnover. Well, shouldn't you then be even more aggressive about how you pull the job apart, only keeping the parts that are actually interesting? Right. So that people who do stay, when, you actually have, when you've invested in them, they're getting more out of it. They're more inclined to stay. It's actually satisfying to them. They're actually involved. And so I just think some of this is as much about the nature of work and the relationship between the person and the work and the company as opposed to just we've got to pay to skill people up. If you look at where the biggest skill gaps are, I mean, top of the list is the digital skills. But shortly after that are skills like customer service. Uh English language, actually. Uh, you know, so if you start to pull it apart beyond just digital, those are areas where a lot of kind of America's first jobs, be they at Walmart or at Kroger or at McDonald's, all build skills that are in short supply and needed in the future. So this isn't all about the digital skills. This is about some of the core customer service skills that are in short supply. Why are customer service skills in short supply? Customer service is not a new field, right? Why would they be in short supply? Well, I mean, one of the interesting things is there was a trend for a period of time of almost everyone thought that everything was going to go mobile, right? One of the right, interesting things, true. right, if you think about the, the, the e-commerce and the mobile commerce, you mm-hmm. saw a, a period of time where everyone's fascinated with it was, one, a way of lowering working capital. You weren't carrying inventory. You had less bricks and mortar and then like just less people. And some of it was, oh, well, we can get that on the website. I know I came here. I'd like to actually be helped. I think we're at a period now where we found this meeting ground, particularly younger buyers. So at the same time, you have the legacy aging boomers who really want to touch before they buy. You have the youngest buyers, which presents an interesting barbell, who have this nice interplay of like digital and mobile and want to do the experience. Like people right, are going back to, yeah, they're yeah. Going, yeah, right. They're going back to shopping malls which is remarkable. It is remarkable. And then the group in the middle who did most on mobile. I think that's actually made the role of customer service more complicated. And made, like it's like multi-channel customer service, right? And, and, and I think that it's going broader than the traditional consumer industries that are customer service. Healthcare now is much more a customer service game than it was 20 yeah, years ago. 100%. And so as you think about what those folks are going to need to... Um, create loyal patients, what those folks are going to need to coordinate care. Those are much more the interpersonal customer type skills than what they may have had 20 years ago. Right. That's a great point. Customer experience is so much more. It's an imperative now in a way that it maybe choice. wasn't two decades ago. Funny, right. enough, choice, funny enough, choice drives that. Right. I mean, think about, I think we talked about this once before, when hospitals were trying to get their head around dealing with choice, they started hiring people from uh, hotel chains. Because you viewed you viewed that orientation as the person was your guest. It just so happened to be instead of room service and booze, you were getting a catheter and an x-ray. So you know what I think is interesting about this point, though? In particular, healthcare, right, when you think about the differences, one of the things we haven't talked about yet is how some companies are forced to say, do we need the same skill level? So did you get a flu shot this year? I'm not going to answer that question because it's embarrassing that I did not. Okay. 
Well, for those of us yes, who got it at- Yes, I did. I got a flu shot this year. Yes, I did. Stop winking so hard. Yeah. <laughs> but for many of us, we'll get our flu shot at work by someone who shows up. Maybe we'll go to the local Target or we'll go to the local Walmart. In our lifetime, I mean, I've got this spectacular scar on my left shoulder where we would have gone to the doctor. Mm -hmm. And then at some point it went from the doctor to maybe the PA or the nurse practitioner. Then at some point the nurse. Today you go to a barely a med tech that you can probably get from your local community college. The actual activity is identical. Like literally drawing and, and dispensing uh, medicine. But we've decided that that thing can be contained from a risk standpoint, that you don't need to have MD behind your name. So as soon as you lower the knowledge or the skill requirement, the cost of the barrier to entry goes really low. You can have more people doing it. And I wonder if there aren't more opportunities to say, we used to convince ourselves we need this certain certification or we need this certain level of education. You just don't. And when you pull the job apart into these component pieces, you have more than opportunity. I mean, what one other area where customer service is getting big in a world where you don't have choice is government services. Mm. So I was talking with mm -hmm. the chief. True. I was talking yes. with the chief digital <laughs> officer of you know a big U.S. state, and he said that the governor's top three priorities for him were customer experience, customer experience, customer experience, or in their case, citizen experience, citizen experience, sure. citizen experience. So when you go to your DMV. You don't have the experience that all of us think of or that, you know, is memorialized in Zootopia or other, you know, movies or think, you know, you actually have somebody that's responsive to your needs and thinking about that. So those customer service expectations are now going beyond just retail into healthcare, into government services and more broadly. And when you think about that broad reach, that's part of what's driving the skill gap in folks that have the ability to deliver that. Companies may or may not know where their skill gaps lie now, but in your experience, do most companies have a proper inventory of the skills on their staff currently? No, not even close. I mean, it's remarkable. One of the things that I think we, a few years ago, we started going down the road of looking to invest in how could we pull apart jobs, understand the knowledge, skills, and attributes, experience if you needed, and then try to get a sense of what the match was between what they needed and what was uh, incumbent. Because of course you wanna think, we're gonna go with the employees you have at least out of the gate, right? What became very clear was LinkedIn or services liked it had a dramatically better read on what people were capable of doing than most companies. That was remarkable, right? That, that idea, and it's not intended to be a plug for that, but it's that the rise of social and the social platform where people voluntarily put out what they've done and where they've been and, and the certifications they have, that was a better collection of that information than most organizations had because pretty much from the time you hired them, you collected job titles, not certified sk right. uh, skills. And that's been a real disconnect. And many companies are now having to play catch up. I mean, a core part of that is really understanding the skill supply. As Bill said, is outside in is the best source of data. But then you can supplement that data with good artificial intelligence. And so there's a group called Eightfold we've partnered with that can go in and look at, say, you're a McKinsey partner. It's probably not in your LinkedIn profile that you know how to use Excel and PowerPoint. Right, right. But you can infer that we do have those skills. And so having a program that says, hey, Bill and Brian have been at McKinsey, all these people at McKinsey have these underlying skills. They haven't listed it anywhere, but we're pretty sure we can populate that in. And so when you combine the outside in reporting view with some artificial intelligence lens, you get a much better view of what an individual can do. I mean, this is where the interoperable learning records come in, is today there's no good way of tracking it across companies, across areas, so LinkedIn is the best place, plus artificial intelligence. If you get some of these interoperable learning records or pieces when they come in online, 
three, five, 10, however many years it takes for that to be uh, accepted, you're going to get a much better uh, view of the talent supply. You have the skill supply. Can you give us a quick definition of interoperable employee record? I think it's implicit in what you've been saying, but some listeners may benefit. All right. So an interoperable learning record is like a transcript. So just like you have a transcript from high school or you have a transcript from college, uh, it's a transcript. But in addition to what is on your transcript, I mean, my first job was as a bag boy at Kroger. They called it courtesy clerk. Are you from the Midwest? I uh, was in Atlanta. So it was the Kroger in Peachtree City, Georgia, uh, where the courtesy clerk is cart pusher, bathroom cleaner, clean up aisle five, all of those um, jobs in one. Mm-hmm. Before uh, the robot identified the spill. Before the, before the <laughs> robot identified the spill. No, exactly. Um, so that was my job. I learned a lot on that job. And you could say I learned as much or more of what I use today from that job in terms of people skills, in terms of empathy. You know, when you see somebody for the first time using food stamps and is not really sure what qualifies and you're their bag boy, you learn a lot watching that interaction. You could imagine that you could categorize the skills that you learned as a bag boy, which is what it was courtesy clerk colloquially termed, you know, bag boy. What you learned as a bag boy, you could actually have in that learning record alongside, here's what I did in high school, here's what I did in college. And if you had those together, you could actually have a much more holistic profile of what somebody did. If at every point along the way, the next employer, the next school adds in the skills that you had or the pieces. So that waitress job or that waiter job that you have, you can actually document and have documented the types of skills that you acquired there. So when somebody is looking for customer service background or empathy background, you know, they can actually reward that in this case, you know, frontline work example, but it applies regardless of what some of those earlier experiences are, but it's trying to give work the same uh, weight as school. Right, right. Interesting. Brian was a courtesy clerk. I myself was a cashier at the Highland Food Mart. Bill, what do you have to confess to us about jobs in your history and your um, interoperable learning portfolio? Uh, mine would start with being a bouncer. Oh, appropriate. So, so you know, no. one of the things that I think is great about these experiences, and like in my case, I literally went from being a bouncer to working at the residential psychiatric treatment center, right? And so the joke is that in both cases, we help people change their behavior incredibly quickly. But, you know, I wanted to come back to something Brian said, which is so important. Brian, as a customer courtesy clerk or bad guy, he was paying attention to things like, did they struggle with how they paid? You know, were there opportunities to help them in terms of just, oh, here's how we can literally bag this to make it easier for you, right? That's There's an observance that Brian had that is part of who he is. So experiences are awesome. Certified skills are great. Knowing who the person is and then being able to impute what they were likely to get out of it, probably better, right? So if you go down this road, it always does come back to, do you know who your employees are and what you can meaningfully expect to get out of them? Interesting. How do you know that at scale? I mean, there are ways of, you know, so if you are able to capture through LinkedIn and artificial intelligence and in the future an interoperable learning record who they are, there are assessments that you can have that score things like conscientiousness, and you can combine those together and, again, impute what the skills are. The key is then saying, okay, now that I understand at scale what skills my employees have, 
job descriptions today aren't written with skills in mind. I mean, one of the big things, if you read a job description and if you had the perfect interoperable learning record, if you looked at job descriptions the way they're written today, you wouldn't know how to link up the skills that we now know our employees have with what's in the with what's in the job description. There are folks like the U.S. Chamber of Commerce Foundation and their JDX um, project that's looking at put, making skill-based job descriptions, but to, which would allow you to do it at scale. But right now, even if you get all the skills right, it's hard to link that to you know what jobs people and we're would fighting be against to get decades into. of complexity on this front. Just, right. I mean, the old school job description. It's remarkable how long, largely driven by the U.S. government, largely driven by either labor relations or you know HR law. We're trying to get clients to say if you can really distill down to the few jobs to be done. And then take that into the tasks that are going to be completed. Then you can have an honest conversation about what level of skill do we actually need. That constrains or opens the pool up, and then you can pick. And then you just got to know what they can do and who they are. And, and when you bring that to a reskilling context, you know, we did a survey of companies that have gone through reskilling programs. And those who spent the time to really understand the skills required and really spent the time to understand what their supply was, so they understood both supply and demand we're 1.7 to 1.8 times more likely to have a successful reskilling program. Because if you have a reskilling program that's like, I think we might need this in the future because I read an article. I mean, that's the spray and pray version of reskilling. Right? right. <laughs> <laughs> right? Ver right. Ver versus doing the hard work that Bill's talking about, which is translating the you know, job into what are the discrete jobs to be done and how does that link up with the skills our folks hope have? It, you know when the, the old school phrase, hope is not a strategy. <laughs> There is something here around we may want every employee to be able to be reskilled genuinely because we want to protect them. We don't want them to no longer fit in our plans. The data is just so decidedly not that. I mean, I, I had a PhD intern maybe about a year ago, spent three months trying to find evidence of this. We do sort of a quick and dirty meta-analysis. I couldn't find anything better than 30%. Wow. And that doesn't mean that's not the case, right? Because I was doing the whole, I was doing the percentage of the whole workforce. When you see the numbers that tend to be higher, it, it's usually they've already screened for people into a pool and then taken it, right? Which is you're already going down to range restriction. I think the, the synthesis of that is not everyone is going to be successfully reskilled. It doesn't mean that everyone doesn't deserve a choice. And that's a real, real decision to make for the company. I mean, where we're seeing the most success in the reskilling and some of the biggest examples like AT&T, you know, if you take somebody that worked in the old school network in AT&T and they're moving to an IP-based, voice over IP kind of internet network, that's a totally different set of skills. And so they can say, look, we know eight years from now, this is what our network looks right. like. You work in the network today, you want the analogous job, you need a different skill, and they can partner at scale to make that transition happen. Or if it's an IT company that's gone from mainframes to the cloud in their offerings, they can, you know, make the pitch to their employees, okay, this is the similar job requires different skills. It's a big reskilling, but you can do that. Where it's harder is where there's not the clear job on the other end. Your job isn't transforming. Your job is going away. And if your job is going away, that's where you have to be very thoughtful about, okay, what are the career paths that others have done? That have been successful. Where are the adjacent jobs that are, you know, most likely useful? And we're investing in trying to figure out literally millions of records to go through and say what are the paths of different jobs that are successful. If you're a bookkeeper, you know, what does that look like in terms of accounting or other skills? You know, how do you make that path? 
because it's in those areas that I think it's the hardest is when, not when a big chunk of work is transforming, but when the work is going away. So Brian, we've been talking a lot about talent shortages on the supply side. What about demand? How is demand changing? Uh, digital skills are going up. Interpersonal skills are going up. Uh, critical thinking is going up. So when you automate the dull and the dangerous, what's left is the human, the creative, the interactive, the, you know, what's happening. And so that's where the demand is moving. And so when you think about reskilling programs, yes, there's a basic digital literacy that most people need. But beyond that, you know, it's as much the soft skills as it is the hard skills. And when you talk about soft skills, what is it exactly that you mean? Well, you know, it's, it's really interesting as we were going through that. I was thinking, of course, the people listening to us, if they were in the middle of America, would say, we are short light industrial labor. We are short basic skilled labor, even today. Mm-hmm. One of the interesting things about this whole thing, and I, I promise I'll get to the, the soft skills just in a second, but one of them that we're faced with is there's a large swath of roles that no one seems particularly interested in. One of the interesting dynamics of this entire conversation is we have been in relatively constrained labor market right. where people have meaningful choice and say, well, you have the skill. Well, what if I don't want to? I have options, right? So there's something, there's something here about like having more, not, not being short opportunities, which is what people have right now, mm-hmm. right? Okay, so just drawing a line under that because some of this is sometimes we act as if the employee doesn't have choice. The employee most certainly has choice. Opt-out rates are quite significant on these where people choose not to participate. It's just an interesting dynamic. Maybe we can pick that up at another point. But if you think about the nature of reskilling, not everyone says, I want to sign up for that. Right. Well, reskilling, I'm sure, inspires anxiety in a lot of people. Not everyone will respond to reskilling yes. in a way that embraces the possibility to, you know, a lot of people hear robots are coming to take 100%. my job. Yeah. And the positioning of it is it reskilling towards a role we may not necessarily know how big it's going to be versus upskilling you or preparing you for a life beyond this firm, which I love the, the, the job record. One of that's one of the things that's in your satchel. Like I can take this and go anywhere. So that positioning is there, but let's just for a second, think about making someone more employable. One of them might be in this area of soft skills, which I, I often bristle at hard and soft because I think the soft skills that we talk about colloquially is actually the harder of things to train. Things like being able to listen, listen, not just what exactly is said, but actually list for contextual clues. Right, so think about your eighth grade English teacher who asked you to read something and say, use your context clues to figure out what's going on. Now you're dealing with humans with faces being made and tone changing and the intensity going, oh, this is what's really going on. The actual capacity to interact with another person and figure out what they're really saying, hugely important. Right? So when all the boring stuff goes away, you're left with people interacting with people. And you know what? We have trained very few people on how to do that. It's hugely important. Do you also think it's on the wane as, you know, an entirely new demographic interacts primarily virtually? I mean, when we were growing up, you know, your mother dragged you around to the bank, to the grocery store. I don't know. My teenage sons can tell me all of the nuance of, you know, what's happening on the Instagram or whatever, or (laughs) a text back. Why are you shouting at me? They're close textual readers. Yeah. (laughs) They can pick up differences between emojis. They speak emoji. Yeah, I mean, so I mean, so they they've got a completely different way of interpreting what's going on, but it is definitely more than just pure text that's coming across their phone screen. But right. it is the language. If you were to treat it almost as if learning a separate language, it is for in all effects a separate language. I mean, there's, if I think about my you know my twenty year old and now my eleven and ten year old, 
the girls can interact in a way with subtlety and nuance that I can't even begin to get my head around. Right. And so I, I do think it's just we're faced because the boomers are still around in the workforce. But with the youngest generation coming in, we're faced with such different generational divides. Some things are common, like you'd like to work on things that matter. You want people to be respectful of you. But in other ways, just the ease with which this group, the, the younger group, has moved from experience to experience, they don't have any problem at all. In fact, they demand novelty, resilience, rolling with it. Mm -hmm. Whereas the boomers, in their lore, in their stories, was the American institution of resilience. We got punched in the face. We rose. This is what you do. You're, their grandparents would have suffered through the Depression, right? We're now on two decades of, for lack of a better word, profound helicopter parenting. Right. Profound right. risk oriented. We're not going to let you drive your bike to a park because we're worried about you being snatched in a van. And I'm not trying to make a sociological uh, point here, but more of the way they've been raised. We've tried we've tried to protect them from bad experiences, from defeat, from negative setbacks. So it's almost now where work has had to take the place of that in a sense of developing resilience on setbacks, feedback, things like that. Really interesting. So how do you train for soft skills? I mean, there is a broad range of skills that are soft skills, um, but you can absolutely train for it. As a certified nurse assistant, you can train for how to interact with somebody who's dying, how to interact with their family members, and you can role play it. You can play back what the, the sense of it is. There are ways that you can teach soft skills by being on a sports team and being very intentional about this is what it means to be part of the team. This is what it means not to quit. So there are both in-classroom and out-of-classroom ways of teaching it, but it can absolutely be taught. And if it's part of your job, you can be reinforced on it. Bill, anything to add before we close? Yeah, I would just say, what an amazing conversation. And it's, it's, it's so salient as people think about it because they're bombarded with these messages. And at the risk of just hearkening back to other conversations we had, the clients that seem to be doing this best do start with how we're going to make money and which roles really matter and which skill pools really matter. And they don't attempt to do this for everything right out of the gate. It really does start with what's critical to us being successful. What does that demand in task? What does that demand in skills? And what do we have, right? And if you can just follow that prescription, they can start getting their heads around. They don't need to have an answer immediately for everything. Yeah, and, and when they do start to understand what they need and what they have, then they can figure out how they're going to close the gap. And what we're seeing time and time again is for many of these, you can't hire for these skills. There aren't enough people out there. So if you can't hire for it, training for it is the next best thing. But if you're going to train, make sure you understand who you are training so you're setting them up for success in the next role. It's not that you can just have these blanket programs. You have to understand what the future job is, who the human is, and how to best bridge that gap and whether that bridge can be um, crossed at all. Fantastic. Guys, thanks so much. This was a great conversation. Thanks a lot. It was great. Thank you. That's our show for now. For more on reskilling, talent management, and our insights on organization, please visit us at www.mckinsey.com. I'm Lucia Rahili. See you next time, and thanks for joining us. 